Good evening, church. Happy New Year. Yeah. Everybody warm? Set some chairs on fire if we need to. Wow. Wow. Turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We're going to do something momentous tonight. We're going to exegete the entire chapter, the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Now, this is something that should take months, but we're going to do it in about 25 minutes. Only because Pastor Duke laughed at me and challenged the fact that it could even be done. Next week, we're having a moment of prayer and fasting. We're joining with the rest of our every nation brothers and sisters literally around the world. And we're fasting around the book of Ephesians, the entire book. And if you've not picked up a prayer and fasting guide, let me encourage you, get one. And you can say, what is fasting? I I like to eat. So do I. Take a look. Please don't laugh. That hurts my feelings. But... But fasting can just be giving up anything for a moment of focus and consecration, whereby which we're not just looking to get something from God. It's not an exchange of, God, I'm going to stop eating Oreos for a week so you'll do something for me. All right? God cannot be bargained with that way. But it's a moment whereby which, whether it's a rumble in our stomach, whether it's desire to pick up our electronic device, whatever the thing is that God is wanting to put his finger on for you to give up for a moment in order to know him better, that should be the goal of a moment of prayer and fasting. Not just, again, to try to curry favor with God. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't curry any favor with God. You already have favor with God because of what Christ has done. And so giving a little extra money or giving up your Oreos or putting your iPhone down, whatever you think it might be, let me just tell you, you're good with God today. Everybody happy about that? But it does something in you and in me is that it gets us oriented and it gets us focused. And we're going to be in the book of Ephesians out of our study guide. And tonight I want to introduce Ephesians by looking at the first chapter. From the, from the little book, we know that this is one of the most significant books in the New Testament. Romans is pr- the, the primary document of the gospel. Then the book of Ephesians is the primary letter that's given to us that talks about the relationship between God and the church being you and me. It's a significant book. And it's one that unpacks a lot of information. So let's just go through it literally line by line, and let's draw some themes and some truths out of Ephesians, the first chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, right here in the very first, we see Paul's identifying himself. But he's not just identifying himself based on his function and his job description, but he's introducing a theme in these very first few words of God's ordination. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And we're going to hear this theme of ordination come up again and again throughout the entire book of Ephesians. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Interesting here that the saints, that's an ordinary greeting, simply meaning the body of believers, the Christians, the church, if you wish. But he makes a little distinction here to the saints, comma, the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
The faithful meaning those that they've set themselves apart, not only being faithful in action, but having faith. But we see another central theme introduced right here in the second verse, in Christ Jesus. And in Jesus, you're going to hear this term again, again and again throughout the passage, throughout the, the chapter rather. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Have you ever wondered about that? Every spiritual blessing. Now I don't know about you, but I've got one or two blessings in this realm that I have not yet taken hold of. Anybody else waiting on a little something, something? Thank you very much. But notice the language here, the verb tense, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's already there. It's already happened, and it's been secured. But where has it been secured? In heaven. It's been secured in the heavenly realms. Therefore, if it's a spiritual blessing, it has to be what? Spiritually what? Attained. There we are right there. And in this, in this realm, there is no question about the rule or reign of Christ when you get into the spiritual realm. Amen? How many of you know that there's a bit of a question here on the earth? Don't look at me like that. I mean, have you looked around and you wonder, is God really in charge of this thing? Have you ever wondered, when is God going to come down here? And I, I, I saw this billboard years ago. Don't make me come down there. God. And I sort of thought, well, I thought that was kind of the whole idea of Emmanuel. I thought that was sort of the whole idea of eminence was God coming to be with us. So, but the reality is every spiritual blessing in Christ. Interesting. Nothing being withheld. It says every one of them. But we've, but we've juxtaposed so many times spiritual blessing with tangible temporal or temporary blessing, so to speak. And it's just like, well, I can't spend it. I can't touch it. I can't eat it. I can't wear it. Does it really count? You bet it counts. Because in that realm, let me just tell you, it is not under assault. It's not under attack in any way. And let me also say this to you. As the benefits are spiritual in nature, they have to be attained to us by the Holy Spirit, whose function it is to make known to the believer all that God has achieved in Christ. It's like, it's like a, a gift that you keep opening and keep opening and keep opening. This is how spiritual revelation, spiritual blessing works. But it's the ongoing revelation of the Holy Spirit that we really can see that which Christ has attained for us. He's stored up for us. And saints, listen, we don't define the blessing. The blessing is defined for us. And let me tell you what that blessing is. You ever wondered what a spiritual blessing, what, is it, what does Paul mean here? Let me give you my take on it. The greatest blessing to mankind is to be made right with God. Could I say that if you want to just, just sum it all up, boil it down to, its, to how in the world that great sermon at Pentecost, you killed God. What you going to do now? 
Kind of like the, the bus movie years ago. What you going to do, Jack? But what are you going to do now? Now that you've murdered God, how are you going to get out of this one? That was quite a sermon. Quite a few people got saved that day. But the greatest blessing that we have is to be made right with God by a perfect, holy God. We love Jesus. We love the idea of the forgiveness of Jesus, the redemption. We'll get to that in a moment. But many times, we don't really understand Jesus until we understand him as judge. You know, when you're perfectly righteous, guess what? You got the right to judge. You ever heard somebody say, you, can't, you ain't to judge me? Ever heard that one? You ain't to judge me. Know what I know who is? The one who's perfect and righteous, he is the judge of you. Okay, he's the judge of the whole thing. As a matter of fact, it's not the father that pulls the trigger at the end. It's Jesus. Read the book. Hmm. But it's not only being right with him. It's being in right relationship with him. Keep reading. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless, what? In his sight. Here it is. This is the plan. This is, this, this is the great blessing right here. He's made us right. And he had already determined this thing. Once again, the theme of election comes up again. He chose us. And before we could act, react, or respond, whether positively or negatively, God made a decision. I want that knucklehead. I want Sister So Sad over there. I mean, whoever, and we look and we can say, God, why? Because, because he's God, holy and blameless in his sight. And you realize nothing escapes the purview of God. Nothing. And yet, this is what he's done for us. And this is somehow wholly different than the movable scales of the world. Of how we are viewed in someone else's eyes or maybe including our own eyes. But in his eyes, holy and blameless. This was the plan from the beginning. And it goes on to define not just the righteousness, but the nature of the relationship. In love, verse 5, he predestined, there's that word again. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love speaks to motivation. He was not, he was not under compunction. He didn't have to. I either, got, I either got to get him right or kill him. No, in love, this was his motivation. Predestined, adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. There's that in Jesus again. Under Roman law, an adopted son had all of the rights, every one of them, as a natural born son by nature. Believers, are only are so only by adoption and grace, yet they are co-heirs with God. And the ground of this gracious action is to be discovered in the character of God Himself. Hmm. See, it's not just His will, but it was His pleasure. It's interesting. And we can say, well, 
Thank, I, I, I'm glad he liked it, but it says, it goes on in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It was God's pleasure to see this happen. Paul continues in verse 7, in him we have redemption. There's the in him again. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace, he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Some interesting Pauline language here. The word lavished. When you hear that word, what do you think about? Expense, excess, do you not? That word lavish is a word that we don't use much. But it says that God lavished upon us these things. And, and Paul begins to work the list. Redemption. What does that word redemption mean? It has to do with the emancipation of slaves or prisoners. By derivation, it also means a ransom that's been paid. Colossians 1 verses 19 through 20 talks about the cost of this redemption. For God was pleased to have all his dwellness, his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making, making peace through what? Through his blood shed on the cross. Redemption is a legal act. You were this, now you're this. You're in bond, you were in bondage, now you're free. Here are your walking papers. But inasmuch as redemption is a legal act, if you wish, forgiveness is a relational one. It's relational. Forgiveness is loosing something from what has bound it. And it stems from a verb that means literally to send away. The picture here is taken out of Leviticus 16 where Aaron, the priest, would lay the hand on a sacrificial goat and in that transfer the sins of the entire nation onto that goat and send it into the wilderness by itself. This is a picture of forgiveness. Is that God lays his hands, if you wish, on the sacrificial lamb and sends it away. Therefore, forgiveness is not just well, I forgive you, but I don't forget. But it's a restoration of relationship, redemption and forgiveness. And it says he did all this with all wisdom and revelation. He's meaning that he does this in a particular way. And this word wisdom is the word Sophia, which literally is the knowledge which sees into the heart of things. In other words, it's not just it's, it's, it's not just I'm going to give it to you, not give you any understanding, but I'm going to open your understanding to see that which I've done for you. The idea that both, and in this passage, there's the idea that these are literally like gifts or the charis or charismata of the Holy Spirit, wisdom and revelation, that we can really see and understand what this redemption and forgiveness really means. Verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. There's that word again, which he purposed in Christ. Mystery is one of these words that tends to come back in Ephesians. Talks about the mystery of a husband and a wife. 
<laughs> Not trying to figure your wife out, but the mystery of covenant between a husband and a wife and that between Christ and the church. But this word mystery is a recurring theme. It simply means a truth once hidden but now made known. And you see, this mystery was how does this work itself out? Who is this Messiah? How, how is this all of this apocryphal stuff? This all this, how is God going to tie a bow around all of this? And in the New Testament, the unlocking of this mystery has been now, it's already taken place in Christ. Is that we're not looking for this little piece of knowledge or information or revelation. Is that it's already this mystery has been made known through Christ. One commentator says this, The extent to which Christian writers recognize Christ as a fulfillment of messianic hopes is indicated by this transference. Made known, the derivative of the word gnosis or knowledge, denotes what has already happened when Christ came in the flesh. This affirmation may be intended to counteract the incipient Gnosticism that appeared at that particular time. Gnosticism was, if you wish, a cult that believed there was this secret body of knowledge that was just given to a handful of individuals. How many of you know that God has made this now known? Romans 1 says that what can be known about God can be seen through the creation. Amen? It's that God has made himself known to you and to me. It's not just this little secret information that God has just deposited with a handful of prophetic or weird revelational individuals. But he's made this known through Christ. It goes on and it speaks that, in this same passage, it speaks about the times. It's interesting here that this is from a word, oikonomia, which means it relates to household management. How everything is going to be brought together and eventually it represents divine government of the entire universe. You know, many times we see it all just about humankind, but God is a God of all the cosmos. He's going to bring everything into a divine ordering. Everything that is chaotic, everything from global warming to whatever else is kind of firing off in the universe, everything is going to be brought under divine household management, if you wish, to bring together, to sum up together. You know, it's interesting when they did math back in the day, the addition, the sum was not at the bottom of the set of numbers, but the sum was at the top. It's very interesting. And many times we see, you know, we, we, we're going to add all of these things up. And you see people try to, they get their boards out and they try to, you know, do their white boards of, you know, this thing and ashes and red heifer and the temple and this date and this thing. And they begin to add everything up. But the reality is, is that in everything being summed up in Christ, the sum goes at the top. It's not as a result of a sequence of events. It's a very, very important concept because there's a lot of people that got some really strange ideas about how this thing is going to unfold and how it's going to unwind. It says the total, the, the column of figures added up total place at the top. At the end of the age, everything will add up to one thing. It will add up to Christ. And this recognition of his preeminence 
will ensure that the original harmony of the universe is restored, Romans 8. And the mission of Christ extends beyond human race and assumes cosmic dimensions. Romans 8 happens to be my prophetic passage for this year, which I'll preach on Sunday. Verse 11, it goes on. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Also chosen. Here there's a real picture of it's the church along with Israel. There are those that believe that somehow the promise is given to Israel Somehow that the church is now the new Israel. That those promises because of the new covenant have been negated. We don't believe that. Scripture doesn't bear that out. We believe that God has done this for both the Jew and the Gentile. The mystery of which Paul was commissioned was that this gospel was not just for the Jew, but it was also for who? The Gentile. Also you were included, it says. And in conformity with his will, and please note that is in this conformity, it's never under threat to anything or anyone that would challenge that conformity. Let me just say, God's going to have his way. Or somebody put it so succinctly, Yahweh or the highway. And sometimes, again, we wonder, how is all of this going to come in a conformity to his will? And, of course, a lot of what we're talking about, we are waiting to see the fulfillment of. And it says, you were included. In Christ, once again, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, it is the hearing of faith that brings salvation. Hearing of faith. That brings. The truth they needed to know was that the Gentiles, as Gentiles, they had a place in God's redemptive plan. And it's the hearing of that faith that brings salvation. And then having believed, Scripture continues, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Acts 19. Paul gets to Ephesus and he comes to comes to a group of believers. He found some disciples. It says, verse 2, it says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. You see, it was at that moment that Paul was not asking them about, have you been water baptized? He was asking them, is there the stamp, is there the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that's come upon you? You see, this was something that was very, very important in the early church, this stamp, this seal, the manifestation of the Holy Ghost in operation in an individual's life. And the word seal here had various uses. It's an important word. Stay, stay hold of this. It was affixed to a document or guarantee of genuineness. You know, we, we get a product now, and it says the seal of what? Authenticity. So whether or not you're buying real Oreos or real ketchup or what seal of authenticity, right? That's important to us. Do you realize that's what the Holy Spirit is in your life and mine? It's the seal of authenticity. Is that you are the real thing. It doesn't matter about the fish hanging from your rearview mirror. 
or how many Bibles are hanging around your house. But that seal is the Holy Spirit, the third person of God himself who's come to take up residence on the inside of you. It also indicates ownership, authenticity, ownership, designation. And it's interesting, it goes on and it also says it represented a designation of office in state service. And you look at all of these things as it involves and pertains to the church, believers, authenticity, ownership. We are not our own, but we have been purchased with what? With a price, Scripture says. The designation of office. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? We are what? Ambassadors. The word ecclesia, church, literally means a governing body. Not just those that are called out, but God has given us what? Government, authority. As God is in the church. And the Holy Spirit manifests all of the above. Verse 14, he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He set his seal of ownership on us, it says in 2 Corinthians 1. And a deposit is never the whole. You make a deposit on something, you haven't made the entire payment, have you? You make a deposit, but in making that deposit, you're making a declaration, this is going to be mine. Another picture of this concept is an engagement. It's a pledge. You buy the ring, ask the question, talk to the dad, get the minister, book the church, buy a cake, whatever it is. And so you, you make a pledge to do it, but how many of you know that that ain't the marriage? It's not the consummation of covenant. And this picture here, this deposit, it speaks of something that will happen later at the end of the age. We haven't come into the fullness of it. In this particular moment. But listen to this. Our relationship in the, with the Holy Spirit is the closest taste we have of ongoing fellowship with Christ in glory. He's that deposit. It's as close as we get to heaven. It's as close as we get to unaltered, unending, uninterrupted fellowship with Christ himself. Is how we now relate to the Holy Spirit. It is a glimpse, is a deposit, if you wish. This is why our relationship with the Holy Spirit is so central to our experience as believers, not just as a conduit for spiritual gifts or power to get something done. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, he will take from what is mine and make it known to you. It's how we touch heaven. It's through that intimacy with his third person. And he goes on, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The eyes of your heart. Unique Pauline language in the New Testament. The heart, understanding that, that place of illumination. That, that place of thought, moral judgment, feeling, the place of interior enlightenment. God doesn't just want us to have a cognitive recognition and about God, but in, in Jesus.
three items are selected for particular attention. Our calling. And again, another favorite called Pauline word. What we're being called to. And this calling has various moments in time. It's already taken place. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us, it says, to a holy life. It's ongoing. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. It also speaks of future as it is attached to hope. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope. Verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Wow. And that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I don't have time to unpack this from original language, but Paul pulled out every word he could find. Let me just tell you, he the man. And I want you to know this power. And this power that is available in Christ, that who is now inside of you by his Holy Spirit, it's like God who said, I'm done being dead now. Sometimes we fail to understand that it was God in that tomb, not just a man. I don't know that anybody's ever willed themselves up from the grave, but this Jesus did. I don't know about you, that's power. And whatever somebody thinks they got, whoever's got the biggest nuke or whoever's got the most money or, you know, whatever, let me just tell you, let's talk about power for a moment. Real power is power over the grave. And not somebody performing an external action on you like a doctor with paddles or adrenaline. But I'm talking about when you say to yourself, I'm done being dead now. Let me just tell you, that's real power. And Paul is saying, that's what you got. And by the way, while we're we're in superlatives here, it's a name that's beyond any name and any title that will ever be given in any age as long as the earth exists in its current form. So whatever grand potentate president of the hungadunga universe, big hat, badge, whatever you can do, big army, it's just like... Pfft. And far above... And it's not just a dimensional expression, this word rule or authority. As he sits at the right hand of God, and that right hand is not just location. That right hand represents something. It represents authority. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for what? For the church. For the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You know, 
theologians have struggled with this passage because it almost sounds like there's some incompleteness in God without the church. But how many of us know that that impinges on the nature and character of the completeness of who God is in and of himself? It's kind of the notion that people say, well, God made Adam because he was lonely. No, he wasn't. Because God's always existed in three to begin with. And so the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, they could play pinochle together. And so, so God, 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 is, God did not need Adam. Adam was just a whole lot of headache for God. Everybody with me here? The same way that somehow that this passage would mean that God is incomplete without the church is just not true. But the picture here is the church not being an institution or organization, but an organism. It's something that is alive. It's something that is intended to, to be, the, be a God container, for lack of a better word. Think about that for a moment. It's something living, breathing. It's an organism. It is, it is the thing, this, the unit, is the the, the, the bride, it is this divine idea, an ideal being worked out on the planet of what God looks like being expressed through a people. Why do you think the enemy works so hard to distort the image of the church to the world? Why he works so hard to try to infiltrate the spirit of the world into the church? It's not to mess with you and me. It is to pervert the image of God as seen through something precious and holy that God has intended as his bride. His body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One commentator says this, Christ is at once imminent within the church and transcendent over it as he is both within and above the cosmos. And this carefully balanced statement of Christ's role was designed to encourage the church militant here on earth. Is God both imminent, Christ with us, but is God's transcendence above it as well? And we have to hold both of those things in tension and in balance. Our particular flavor of Christendom, we tend to emphasize the eminence of God. What do I mean by eminence? God here. God's going to do something. And so we come with an expectation. We come with a different kind of worship. We come to the altar expecting a type of exchange to happen. That's a wonderful thing. But if we miss the transcendence of God over at the sake of just God's eminence within, can you see how we can rapidly get out of kilter and get out of balance? So what did Paul say? First of all, in Christ. That's the theme of Ephesians. It begins and it ensues there. It's not by him or even through him. 
Are those, are those truisms? Yes. But the larger truth is in him. That's the greater truth and the greater mystery. Themes, his choosing, his will, his conformity. Our inheritance defined not just temporally or materially, but spiritual blessings that must be spiritually discovered, discerned, and demonstrated. A wisdom and revelation to know God. God's supernatural empowering to know him. I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that what you can know him better. God empowers us. These spiritual gifts are not just intended for demonstration to, 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 to practice on one another, as wonderful as that is. But these gifts are primarily given that we might know him better. And the Holy Spirit being the proof, the seal, the deposit of that sonship and that subsequent inheritance. Subsequent inheritance. There's more to it than this, boys and girls. Amen. Regardless of how much of this you can, you, you can pile up in your garage or put in your bank accounts and call it inheritance and blessing, could I just say to you, this is a real poor shadow. It's a real distorted reflection of the real thing. And I don't, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be one of these guys that's prematurely cashing checks in this realm that God intends to be cashed in heaven. Hear me carefully. The church being the fullness of himself, present on the planet. And the church being who we are, not just what we are called to do. Beginning on Monday, we'll start this fast. And I pray that you would dive into the book of Ephesians and you get lost in it. I mean, the idea that we could exegete through an entire first chapter of Ephesians tonight is almost, mm, it's wrong. Because we really should spend months just unpacking some of these verses. But that's a proverbial drive-by tonight. Just to hopefully whet your appetite for what the Holy Spirit wants to do next week. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the richness God, thank you for your servant Paul, his obedience, God to put pen to paper and to leave, God, these inspired words on the page for us to continue to ponder today and know you better as a result. If you're here tonight and you've never had that moment of recognition, That God knows you. He's always known you. You don't hide from God. You don't hide anything from Him. He made you. And He made you in His image. And yet many times the way that we live our life and how sin tends to come and distort that image doesn't look much like God at all. But he loves us enough that he sent his son.
born of a woman, divinely conceived. This Jesus come to do for you what only a God-man could do. A perfect sacrifice. A great high priest, Scripture says. If you've never had a moment that you've allowed this God to come and change your life, move in, take over, slip your hand up. It begins there. That's not the whole thing, but it starts with a recognition. Anyone at all. All right. Lord, do something. God, over these next 10 days or so, make yourself known to us in new and surprising ways. Empower us by your spirit to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. See you Sunday.